Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Behavioral Grooves explores the why we do what we do by having conversations with insightful researchers, wise practitioners, and clever authors around all things behavioral. And before we get into this week's guests, and there are two of them, we want to tell you a little bit about something Tim and me and some colleagues have been working on for quite some time now. It's a virtual conference that we are calling Nudge It North, and it happens on Friday, January 8th, 2021. Oh my gosh, Kurt, that's just a couple months away. We got to tell the listeners what this is about. Yes, yes, we do. Because Nudge It North is a global virtual conference that will bring behavioral science insights to practitioners in all sorts of different fields, but especially in fields such as UX, CX, marketing, and HR. It's going to be a fabulous one-day event that goes well beyond just a bunch of talking heads and brings lots of insight and high-quality networking opportunities to a virtual setting. We're going to have speakers from around the world with both academic and practitioner communities, and we think Nudget North is just going to be great. It is going to be great. And if you want to hear live fireside chats with some of Behavioral Group's coolest guests, you'll want to get signed up now at www nudgeitnorth.com. And just for, for a little bit of background, our keynotes include Annie Duke, Gary Latham, and Robert Cialdini. They are amazingly, amazingly insightful people and great speakers. So jump out right now, go out to www.nudgeitnorth.com and get yourself on the list to get registered. Yeah, so let's take a quick look at these three keynote speakers. In case you don't already know, Annie Duke is one of our favorite guests, right? Mm, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with books such as Thinking in Bets and her latest How to Decide, Annie's approach to decision-making stands on the shoulders of the greatest researchers, and she always has insights that everyone can learn from. Right. And Gary Latham is a professor at the Rotman School at the University of Toronto, and he's the co-creator of goal-setting theory. How amazing is that, right? Yeah. And, and Gary's extended his research into goal-setting by looking at the unconscious motivation that exists with primes. He's a great presenter, and we are so looking forward to having him uh, keynote as well. Yeah. And lastly, the amazing Robert Cialdini is our third keynote speaker. Bob is the author of Influence, and that's a book on persuasion that has sold more than 30 million copies worldwide. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, his work with ethical approaches to persuasion contain insights that honestly can inform both our home and our work lives. But Tim, in addition to our three keynotes, we have speakers with outstanding credentials from around the world, right? Researchers with years of work on incentives, the past head of UX from PayPal and Target, the VP of behavioral science at MadPow, the leader of behavioral science at Spotify. Oh, the man. lineup is amazing. And, and and this is it. It's It's growing every day. We're not done. We're getting <laughs> more great speakers. So you guys sign up. Nudget North is going to be fantastic, and we encourage each of you in whatever country you're listening in to check out www.nudgetnorth.com.
Hot diggity dog, Tim. Hot diggity dog. <laughs> All right. On with the episode. Oh, I think that's a good idea. Okay, Kurt. So Michael Halsworth and Elspeth Kirkman have both been guests on Behavior Grooves in the past. Uh, the first time we talked to Michael was shortly after the BIT team had moved into their Brooklyn offices in December 2018. And we sat in a conference room down the hall from Michael's office and had a terrific conversation. That was episode 41. And it was such an engaging discussion that we asked him to join us for our 100th uh, episode anniversary show in Philadelphia. And he very generously said yes. And by the way, that is episode 100. That's how that works. Kind of amazing how the (laughs) the special 100th anniversary episode is actually episode 100. Wow. Coincidence. Coincidence. (laughs) All right. Um, Michael is the managing director of the North American Behavioral Insights team and is the author of some of our favorite pieces. Some of his earlier work materialized in the form of frameworks such as Mindspace and East, Tim's favorite. Mm -hmm. Michael is not only a terrific researcher such as his work on how framing can influence decision making, but he's also quick to point out when his ideas don't play out as he expected them to. So we are excited to have Michael back on this time with his co-author, Elspeth Kirkman. Yeah, and Elspeth Kirkman helped Michael open the North American BIT office, uh, but she's now back in London, responsible for BIT's work on health, education, and local government. And we first featured Elspeth for her work on frameworks and models in episode 166, and we were so happy that she and Michael co-authored this this new book, which we consider one of the best behavioral science books of 2020. Yeah, it, it is. it is in my top three if yeah. not my top two, if not my top one. I don't, I don't, know. I don't know. All right. So the book is called Behavioral Insights, and it's published by MIT Press for their Essential Knowledge series. They did a fantastic job of outlining exactly how to actually design and implement a behavioral change initiative. The cool thing is, is that this 10-step model is that the of of this 10-step model that the first seven steps are all about design. Measure twice, cut once, as they say. Yeah, yeah. It's a terrific book uh, to read, and we urge you to grab a copy right away. Right. Yeah. You can go out, grab a copy, and then sign up for Nudge It North, right? Or or, or you could sign up for Nudge It North and then grab a copy. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Either way. <laughs> Either way. There you go. Whichever way you pick, go out Get a copy of that and then sign up for Nudge It North. All right. With that, folks, let's get into our discussion about their new book by asking you to sit back with a fine glass of behavioral insights and listen to our discussion with Michael and Elspeth. Elspeth Kirkman and Michael Hallsworth, welcome back to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It is so great to see you guys. It's great to have both of you. I mean, you're return guests and and now you get to be return guests together. This is fantastic for us. It's like a crossover event. (laughs) (laughs) The crazy crossover. The least ambitious. Yes. (laughs) All right. We're going to start with a speed round like we always do. You guys know the drill. Here we go. All right. So Elspeth. Which is more pleasurable for you, hiking up the mountain or coming down a mountain? Oh, down the mountain. Oh, all right. There you go. No. Michael, are you in agreement or are, is this a, a bone of attention here? Yeah. I, I would say up, but I think it, 
Yeah, but I think it depends whether it's a loop or oh. there and back. <laughs> there and back right. again. Ah, yeah, okay. Yeah, because, uh, oh, okay, well, no, speed round, so I, I can't get into it. <laughs> speed round's been great. <laughs> okay, so far, so good. Okay, so, Michael, we're going to start with you on this one. What was your first outside-the-home job that you were paid for? I was I was a waiter um, at a place called Crew Hall, which um, – was was near crew and uh i was kind of a, 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 a tried to be a silver service waiter i wasn't very good at it um uh i've got a scar in my hand for when i i smashed a wine glass in it when trying to clear it oh but, um, on the yeah. like early or uh, was this wasn't like the first day was it um it was uh within the first week <laughs> okay elspeth uh, your your first out of the home paid job uh, I was a bartender. A bartender. All right. Obviously, in America, you have to be quite old to be a bartender. The UK, yes. they don't mind. <laughs> oh, they don't. I was going to say wow. so because you got to be <laughs> legal. You got to be eighteen. And, and were, were you like pouring mixed drinks or just just yeah. you know uh, pumping brew? Not. I wasn't like a cocktail a cocktail mixologist or anything like that. Yeah. It was more you know pouring a pint and those sorts of things. Yeah. Okay. I, I actually had a, a bartending job at in a place called Hills Tap in Hills, Iowa. So again, very rural, very thing. And um, I told the owner, I go, uh, I, I, I've never done this. And he goes, don't worry. You don't have to make any drink unless they have both liquids in it. So if it's a rum and Coke, if it's a vodka tonic, you got to make it. But if it's something that, you know, uh, I don't know, whatever you want to call, you don't a have greyhound. to make it. Yeah, Greyhound. You can say, nope, we don't do that here. So that was that was my my thing. All right. Um, here we'll we'll go back to you, Elspeth. Uh, when you have a chance to travel again, what will be the first destination that you want to go to? Menorca, the Balearic island uh, that is part of Spain. Oh wow, those I hear are beautiful. So, Michael, for you, I'll go to the UK and see my family. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the toughest things, right? Is uh, the separation that that families are having here. So. Okay, Michael, we've got a, uh, we've got a two-part question for you. First, are you a better-than-average driver? I'm an average driver. <laughs> <laughs> okay, second part. Will people who consider themselves better-than-average drivers relinquish control to autonomous vehicles when they finally become popular? If they're actually better than average. Um, I, I think... I think the question is not so much are you actually better than average, but what's your perception yeah. of your of your abilities? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so, do you think it matters? Do you think so? If they feel like they're better than average, do you think they're going to have a harder time relinquishing that control? I mean, possibly yes, um, because uh, there may be kind of frustration. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's an interesting question about whether you, for those people, you could have some kind of like placebo fu function where it feels like they're doing things, but they still get the, <laughs> like the, the, the push kind of button on the crosswalks, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Still get a sense or, of improved. Or, yeah. The close button on the elevator. Close yeah. the, the closed door function. Yeah. Uh, Elspeth, how about you? Are you, are, well, let's ask it from, from Michael's perspective. Do you perceive yourself to be a better than average driver? 
actually I object to the way you've asked that question because I am <laughs> I am a fantastic driver um, I'm certainly better than average <laughs> and- I used to drive a um, I used to drive a van and um, there was this period when uh, I had a large orange van with blacked out windows and lower suspension and my wife had a convertible <laughs> and both of these are quite old vehicles and we used to look like wacky racers going down the road together. <laughs> I, I'm trying to envision an orange van with blackout windows. I got pulled over by the police quite a lot because it just looked so dodgy, but they'd always, you know, I'd roll down the window, there'd be like the Les Rabla soundtrack going or something. I'm like, hello, officer. Just not what they were, what they were not expecting. Quite what they were expecting, huh? <laughs> oh, that, that's, that's, that's all right. Stupid. Okay. Well, uh, of course, the reason that we ask about this is is because of the. It's such a great you know, long-term study uh, uh, in behavioral science. And we love this this idea of the impl- implication of our perception of, of ourselves, this this self-confidence as we get into autonomous vehicles. And and so, Michael, you, you started to kind of tee this up as perception. So what do you think autonomous vehicles should be thinking about, the designers should be thinking about to take into consideration the human factor, the fact that there are going to be some people who are like, ah, I can do this better than the damn car can do it. Uh, yeah. I mean, great question. I, I mentioned there the feeling that you're contributing some way could be quite useful. Um, even if, if you're not, um, I think, is there some other kind of feedback you can give to people? Um, if the, autonomous vehicle is is in charge if you like um something so they can see what's happening or get some kind of reassurance or um participate in some way even if it's passively um so it's you know this is the idea that you may get um you know more nervous on a, a plane because you can't see any of the machinery or you you know maybe don't kind of understand how it's working um so putting some kind of transparency into what's going on uh, just in, in a kind of way that's reassuring and keeps people feeling that, that things are going well, that might be quite useful. Yeah. Elspeth, anything to add on that? Yeah, I guess I don't have any great hacks of how we um, <laughs> make people feel feel better in their autonomous vehicles. I do think that um, some of the, the MIT Moral Machine Project, where they've you know sourced millions and millions of people's views on uh, real, you know, simulated trolley problem situations with uh, self-driving cars and who you should run over and all of that stuff is fascinating, both in terms of how it varies across cultures and um, how it varies in terms of, I think I'm probably going to get this wrong from recall, but I think the bot, you know, who, whose life should you save last? I think it's dogs, criminals, cats, I think is the, um, <laughs> is, the is the rank order, which is just so grim and depressing because... You're a cat Everyone owner. Knows, I'm a cat owner. Yeah, everybody yeah. knows cats are the best. Um, but you know, super, super, uh, super, super depressing, but really interesting as an insight. And of course, you know, the decision as to whether you program that as the what the car should do in that situation or not is not a trivial one. Um, no. And I think that the intersection between that kind of, you know, collective intelligence crowdsourcing um, uh, type stuff to really sort of get your finger on the pulse of what the populace thinks and designing uh, for um, 
driverless vehicles, but also thinking about the kind of human behavior aspect is a super interesting kind of development for the field and uh, something we should be excited by. Yeah, I think it is really interesting when you think about the that project, right, of gathering all of these people, making these decisions on these various different trolley things to then look. And you're you're right in the idea of the cultural differences are, and again, I'm not, a, I haven't really researched this, but, you know, just from the, the perusing of, of the data, the, the cultural differences were, were amazing to me. I was, I was really surprised that there was pretty significant differences in some of the different ways that people are viewing, you know, particularly, you know, older people versus younger people in a variety of different facets around how that worked. So, um, really interesting stuff. But before we just go down whatever rabbit hole that we always do, let's talk a little bit about the book. You guys, uh, have, have written uh, actually one of what I would consider one of the best books uh, that I've read this year uh, and it's called Behavioral Insights uh, and it's by MIT Press. Can you give us a little bit of background about what led to the book and, and, and why you thought that the book was something that, that you guys needed to do? If you remember, Kurt and Tim, uh, when we first spoke, I think it was like October, November 2018 mm-hmm. and Around that time, Elspeth and I were doing some blogs um, for the Behavioral Scientist um, website uh, about uh, behavioral science and literature and what the two can kind of learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what happened was uh, actually an editor at MIT Press read them and then emailed us and said, do you want to do a book? <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, uh, well, Elspeth, do you want to say what your reaction was? I uh, WhatsApped Michael and was like, have you seen this spam we've got? I can't believe that someone thinks that we would imagine this is how books are commissioned. They're definitely going to try and scam us out of some money. (laughs) Michael was was like, no, MIT Press is a really reputable publisher. And I've looked up the guy and he's, you know, commissioning editor. I was, I just couldn't believe it. Oh, wow. So they came, they came to you based on, based on reading your blogs. You guys obviously, you know, kicked it out of, you know, the, the, the field here with your blogs. Uh, so then what, what was the, the conversation? I mean, what did they want from you guys and, and what did you want to, to pr- produce? Okay. So, um, yeah, they, they were interested in this, this uh, series that they produced called Essential Knowledge, which is, you know, short, really nice to produce books um, that give an introduction uh, concise introduction to people who are interested in topic have heard about it, want to learn more, uh, and just want that kind of distillation of what do we need to know? What's going on here? Um, wh- and where's this, this idea going? And what what do I really need to, to kind of understand to use it in practice? And we thought, well, actually, this is kind of a perfect fit because the term behavioral insights has been around you know, for a while now, for actually t- 10 years or so. And it's used in quite a vague way and I think we we look at ourselves and say we've used it in a vague way as well sometimes. Um, but this was an opportunity to sit down and say, well, what is it? What what are people talking about when they're using this term? And actually, we we worked it through and and uh, presented a kind of clearer definition and tried to make it really come alive to people and how you could apply it in practice. And and as we may get into, where's it going next? Mm. What struck me about the book at first was that this is, um, this is, uh, it's not a cursory view, right? It's, it's not a, it's certainly not a, just a surface view, but it's, 
it's different from the in-depth work that both of you have done, right? So much of your work is diving deep into very specific conditions and very specific things. And, and what you've done in, in this book is provide a very broad overview. And I'm wondering what that was like to step back. In fact, I'm, I'm thinking about a conversation that we had with Elspeth, where she kind of teed up this idea of, oh, I think I know all this stuff. But then there was this this little hook that said, wow, I'm writing it down and I'm not really sure about that. And so what was it like to come back to the very broad uh, story after spending so much time really deep in the weeds? Yeah, and I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of the pulling away and looking at it more broadly as to what it was that I was struggling to articulate last time that I think I found so difficult. Because one of the things that occurs to me now is that the easiest way to talk about behavioral insights is to pick an example or many examples and just sort of use those in order to illustrate and show, don't tell. Whereas it was really important in this that we did pull away from specific examples because it wasn't supposed to be a kind of exhaustive list of, look, here's a bunch of experiments. There's loads of books like that. There's, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of things and, uh, you know, many pop science books are really, really kind of great in that regard, as well as more kind of academic academic books. Um, but once you sort of take away that narrative crutch or device, I suppose, you're really just left with explaining what the hell it is and um, you don't have any kind of props to point to or, you know, illustrations. And so um, I think that was the thing I found both rewarding, as I said last time, um, because it forced a deeper level of thinking and a higher level of clarity by the end of it, but quite difficult not to want to just revert back to examples all the time. I want to get back to uh, the the book from the question of not so much from how, uh, but why. Why do you think this book is needed right now? I think we're at a bit of a pivotal moment. Maybe that's overstating it, but a, a really interesting moment um, with the idea of applied behavioral science. So, you know, it's 10 plus years since Nudge came out, um, you know, 10 years since the behavioral insights team was set up. Um, a lot has been done, but if you look around and you say that, well, you know, there are still a lot of decisions that are being made um, by governments, by uh, organizations um, that could benefit from this approach. Um, there are many uh, examples of, of trials that have, have been done and made a real difference, but some of those higher level um, like policy examples, um, you know, are still more, more scarce. Um, so it feels like if we want to really fulfill the potential of, of this approach, um, we need to reflect on where it's got to right now. And get get serious about saying this is what it is. Um, these are the priority areas for the future, um, and you know face some of these challenges. And I think a big overview of the, the the last chapter, which looks at the future, is what are the ways we can move away from a kind of more linear, mechanistic view of behavioral science, where you know uh, organization A does something to person B. Um, in quite a simplistic way, uh, which is not what we, you know, we've ever said you have to do it that way, but it's kind of been the received ap- approach. Mm. And in fact, we're trying to say, are there more kind of nuanced um, and uh, considered ways of doing it that might, for example, draw more on peer-to-peer effects, that might think a bit more deeply about how um, you can have unintended consequences and to bring in uh, techniques that have perhaps been underused to date, like we mentioned human-centered design, like complex adaptive systems. 
Mm-hmm. So it's a real kind of looking to sum up and then say, where do we go next? We've, you know, a lot's been done, but more can be done again in the future. You didn't just define, you went beyond just uh, just offering some definitions. You also had a great, the, I mean, the heart of the book is about laying out a very clear and practical approach in, in 10 steps. And uh, we don't I, don't, I don't want to go through all of those. But I'd like to get your thinking about how did you come to those steps? Because you've been the architects of, of really great uh, frameworks in, in the past with, um, you know, East is, is something that's in my, my life on a daily basis. And, uh, and yet you've, you've kind of broken that down into an extremely practical approach uh, with, with the 10-step the model. And I'm wondering how, what that was like to, to go from where you've been in the framework world to having this very, very specific practical application. Yeah, I think it was, um, again, more challenging than expected. I mean, sit down and write how you normally approach uh, a, a project or program of work didn't feel that hard, but then there was a lot of back and forth on you know, which thing fits in step three versus four, all of this kind of stuff. Um, It is, you know, as Michael said, I think one of the things that is helpful about the example that we use is that it is a very linear, you know, one small kind of decision point. Um, It's a text message trial that we're talking about. So it's it's very kind of neat and you can explain it in a short book uh, in a quick way. Um, The limitation of that, as we, you know, allude to and point out, is that it doesn't kind of address systemic aspects of the problem it's uh, a little bit sort of over clean and all of those sorts of things but now I've kind of apologized for what we've done and you know pointed out all of its limitations um let me talk about the the good aspects of it so I think one of the things that we spent a lot of time pulling out which is the first step in this kind of um 10-step process is this idea of figuring out which level uh you're intervening at and what kinds of levers you're able to pull. So what's on the table from the beginning? And the reason I think it's really important to pull that out and have attention drawn to it early on is that I I am certainly guilty as a behavioral insights practitioner of thinking, okay, you know, we're operating in the realm of sw- small tweaks that have surprisingly large effects given they're small tweaks, but really are just kind of, you know, touching one kind of piece of a, a much larger system. And actually, you know, a lot of the time you do have the opportunity to look at, could we change the fundamental incentives around here? Could we change the environment in which people are making this decision? Could we, change, could we even change kind of legislative um, uh, underpinnings or frameworks within within which this, this policy or process is operating? Um, and making sure that you're actually kind of covering all those things off and really sort of understanding what the realm of the possible is before you kind of burrow down into what type of intervention you're going to do is, I think, a, a way to keep your mind open for much longer and to maximize impact from the get-go. And then the other thing I think that was really striking as we were developing those 10 steps is just how much time, I think it's only step seven, um, where we start to talk about devising the solution and bringing in the actual kind of what would behavioral science tell you to do in this situation. And to me, that was a little bit of a light bulb moment where, you know, it's hardly kind of um, novel. I think um, I think Lincoln had a quote that was something like, if a man wants to cut down a tree, he spends the first, you know, 90% of it sharpening his axe, and the last 10% cutting down the tree, that kind of thing. Um, but it is you know, it was really interesting that this diagnostic piece, I think, is really neglected. And even, you know, I think we use East on a day-to-day basis. It's an incredibly useful framework, but it is focused on 
solutions um, rather than how do you kind of diagnose the problem and get there in the in the first place. And I think that's a good contribution that this 10-step list makes. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. Mike, Michael, would you like to uh, add to that? No, I thought it was a great answer. <laughs> yeah, that is. And, yeah, go uh, ahead. Yeah, and I, I just want to back that up because um, Elspeth was the, the architect of that chapter and we were thinking, yeah, it's actually quite well before you get to the, the doing part. And then we realized that's actually quite significant because um, maybe we don't spend enough time understanding the problem. And that there may have been instances where uh, actually we find out that the problem we thought existed that we went into it looking for changed in that period in, into something quite different. And that's yeah, really worth remarking on. It really is. I mean, there's an old old rune among carpenters to measure twice and cut once, right? So it, on a very simple level, but I also know that that the planning of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco was 11 years, that they took 11 years to plan the construction of a project that, that only took two years to, to build. And you think, has the world changed? Have, have we just gotten too lazy in a, in a Google based world where we can look up anything and find out anything without actually having to really think about it? Uh, are we, are we in a place where we're just not paying enough attention to the design? I think that's really interesting from a kind of project delivery perspective, because I think there's also this thing about needing to be productive and show your work and have drip fed successes throughout the course of a piece of work. I mean, I'm sure, you know, the, the, the Golden Gate Bridge, they would have been, here's the initial kind of blueprints or I know nothing about architecture, so I won't try and use the language, but there will have been those kind of um, wins throughout. Whereas I think that sometimes when you're kind of busy understanding and diagnosing a problem, I know that I've worked on projects before where it's, it's such a complex, difficult environment, something like children's services, for example, where you're looking at how social workers make decisions about what to do with particularly vulnerable children and families. A lot of doing that well and doing that right is doing grunt work at the beginning, acknowledging you're not an expert to just understand the very fundamentals and the basics and play that back. And you can see when you're sort of talking directly to people that work in that field sometimes that you're going so let me just play back what I've seen and they're like yeah I mean I could have told you all of this on day one so don't act like it's a big surprise and it's only once you've kind of done that legwork and all of those sorts of things that you get to the point where you can start generating more kind of novel insights uh, even if as a naive person to the situation you might have observed some of the things that are more unusual from the get-go you don't really kind of earn the chops or the right to point them out until you've proven that you kind of understand the basics and I think that it can feel a little bit um, sort of terrifying to think the first seven steps of this 10-step process are going to be really meticulously slowly diagnosing the problem and probably not blowing anybody's mind and surprising them when what they're expecting is, uh, you know, something that's going to be really kind of um, quirky and different and a new way of looking at things. And I do wonder whether we sort of, um, we as, a, as, as cultures, not just as people working on projects, do try and kind of run to the good stuff sooner because there's this need to be shown to be productive. So one of the things I wanted to ask uh, is this this in the in the book in chapter five you, you guys are you know talking about some of the criticisms considerations and limitations of of behavioral insights and one thing that I thought was really interesting is you talked about uh, and I'll quote here the idea of irrationality is neither central to behavioral insights nor particularly helpful 
Uh, and, and you go into a little bit in deeper, even in thinking through nudges and, and again, talking through nudges about this idea that, hey, many advocates of nudging talk about, uh, make the argument that there is no neutral design. And yet you're talking about that, hey, there's a, that argument has a clear flaw. And part of that is because we, uh, we, we judge people on their intentions. And, and if it's intentional, that takes a different component on that. Wondering if you guys could just talk a little bit about a, this idea of why irrationality isn't um, central or, or particularly helpful. And then, part, and then let's get into a little bit around these nudging aspects and, and what your thoughts are around that. Right. So to start by saying rationality is really difficult to define. Yeah. Um, there's uh, it, it almost instantly you're s kind of stepping into a trap if you start going there. Uh, this guy called John Elster, who's done some really great work about rationality. Um, and I think there is a real danger that policymakers, kind of designers, look at something and say it doesn't accord with their perspective, um, what they consider to be rational, and therefore, or, or rather, shall I say, a good decision. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they think it's irrational. And we did a, a report called Behavioral Government a couple of years ago, which looked at kind of issues with the, 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 the policymaking process itself and how governments act. And we point out that this is something that's um, you're quite, quite likely to happen. People, you kind of assume that people are similar to you and have similar views and you may design things that way. And then if people don't go along with what you expect, you're looking for reasons. And it's a very easy thing to say people are being irrational when in fact they may have perfectly good reasons that you're not aware of uh, for doing things. And so I think irrationality becomes a way of justifying to yourself not doing further work to understand uh, where people are coming from and why they're acting the way they do. Well, I always think it's interesting because a lot of that work, I think, comes from this classical economist perspective uh, of looking at, you know, uh, a world with perfect information and uh, all of those factors that go into it. And and we know, I mean, even classical economists will say that that's not the real world. And yet we're saying, well, these are the decisions that you would make under these types of situations. And so if it's not that, then it's irrational. And I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, and I think that looking at it and, and calling it irrational, I think as some, uh, nuance and pizzazz and, and it gets people's attention, but I think it, it doesn't necessarily lend itself into what we're really doing is, is saying, hey, there's context that matters here and perspectives that matter here. And so, which I think is what you've just kind of outlined there, Michael, would you agree with that? Yes. And I, I think that also the idea of irrationality discourages self-reflection ah. uh, in, in the, the person that uses it as well. And you just get into this kind of, it's like the above average effect we were just <laughs> discussing, but, but for if you're like a, a behavioral scientist or a, a policy designer or whatever. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's very dangerous. Mm. Um, and I certainly have never used it uh, in professionally because of those reasons. And I discourage others from doing so as well. It's more like, and I think there is a whole um, uh, strand of thinking, which we talk about in the book that, you know, Gergerenza particularly is associated with. It says it's not about biases, that there are good reasons people are using heuristics. And I have 
Uh, and we say, look, you know, that, that way of thinking is perfectly compatible with the kind of behavioral insights approach. Um, and it is. Uh, so I think we're, we're trying to get a more open and wide-ranging understanding of the behavioral sciences and how they can be applied to, to issues, a rather than a simplistic one of people are biased, their errors, they're irrational, and we must kind of correct it. <laughs> I think that leads to that's that, that leads to bad policymaking and, and bad service design, in, in my view. Yeah. So with with this idea that there is no neutral design, what what do you want to share with designers to help them guide them ethically along the lines of using the very powerful tools that are available to them uh, for good, you know, sort of on a simplistic level, level nudge for good. I'm going to just say a really quick response to your, your kind of original, uh, well, Kurt, actually what you were saying, um, which is the reason we want to make this, this point about intentions is that I, I do think this is often used as a kind of end argument of uh, there isn't really uh, a problem uh, with with nudges um, because there's no neutral design, right? And you, you you do hear this, and I I have some sympathy with that, but I think I can't really argue with the objection that yeah, but intentions matter, and we see this in in I don't know the criminal justice system. It's fundamental. What you're intending to do, intentional changes are perceived by humans as very different from unintentional changes. And so I just don't think that argument is enough in its own. And that's why in that chapter, we then go through other ways of assessing the kind of ethical dimensions of any particular um, intervention. Well, it goes back, I mean, we talked about the trolley situation prior, right? And, and you, you see intentionality in, in trolley, you're more likely to allow something to happen by an inaction uh, and, and causing deaths than by an action that you actually make in, in, in those trolley situations. And so there is a lot of how we perceive something based on the, the uh, intentionality that is, is acquired or, or put forth with that. So when, when you're doing that, I think it's really interesting. So given that, what are some of the other ways that we can, you, you talk about there's some other things in this chapter. So what are some of the other ways that you look at addressing and, and kind of exploring that way? Uh, so to help people kind of think through the ethical elements of design, we recognize this is really complex and neither of us are ethicists, right? But you've got to come up with something <laughs> fairly kind of practical at some point. Um, and I think there are two kind of main buckets that we basically situate our our argument within. So one is that you need to look at uh, what we might term kind of manipulation, the extent to which you're manipulating, whether you think that word is good or bad. So how does the intervention actually work? So within that, there's the level of control that a person might have. Uh, so, you know, in the classic kind of nudge uh, outlining of the world, you're preserving choice, you're, you know, um, still allowing the person to kind of opt out or whatever it might be. So how easy is it for them to resist the intervention? And then the second is about the transparency around that intervention. So not just what would somebody do or think if you told them about the way that the intervention was happening, but how clear are the intervention? How clear is it that the intervention actually exists in the first place? How clear is it what it's intending to do? How clear is it kind of how it works to people? And I think that there's this sort of perception among, um, you know, there's a sort of straw man perception among some people, which is that behavioral insights has to be sort of 
cloak and dagger all very secretive. And of mm-hmm. course, we know that, you know, there's research that shows that even if you tell people you're about to be nudged and here's how, that um, it's still, you know, it's, it's still effective and that people are actually generally quite accepting of interventions if they're well designed once they understand them. So there's that sort of bit of it. And then there's the kind of what are you influencing side of things, which I guess is more on the kind of um, the paternalism side of the spectrum. So, so one bit is how harmful is it and how beneficial is it to take to either not take or take action here and who's affected by that? So basically, how, how do you justify based on the harms and benefits of intervention, uh, the extent to which you intervene? And then the other thing is kind of people's feelings about that. So how strong are their preferences? How settled are their preferences? How much are they going to be, you know, mega angry if you in- if you introduce some intervention in this area versus how much do they not really care? And it's kind of the sort of combination of thinking through those two kind of angles, I guess, the intervention itself and uh, what you're influencing and then the sort of key components within that that I think help us think through and provide a bit more of a sort of simplistic framework of uh, the ethics of intervention. Well, you bring in an example in the book. You, you talk about the the sugar tax uh, or, or element that was proposed in, in New York, and then you compare that to uh, the the ban sale of uh, acetaminophene. I believe I'm saying that right. Right in the number of tablets in the UK, so not uh, having larger than 32 tablets, and and the impact that that had. And so you're Again, to your point, um, you know, harm and benefit on on those is uh, pretty cut and dry, I think, right? And and uh, on the latter one, whereas on the up upper one, yeah. it's 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 not as clear. And so I think people have a harder time accepting that. Is that did I get that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, you know, the problem is that for the sake of the book, we picked incredibly clear-cut examples so that we couldn't be argued with. But, you know, in real life, if you're having to apply this as a policymaker or business person, then uh, it's 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 not usual that things are quite that cut and dry. Yeah. So what what do you think uh, practitioners need to know? This is this is for this is for people who are interested in, in getting a, a broad overview. They're, they're curious. They read the book. Uh, I can imagine uh, corporate HR departments, marketers, uh, you know, uh, sales executives uh, being interested in, in, in these, these kinds of tools. Uh, I, I love the, uh, I guess there's a part of me that's curious about your thoughts on random control tests because you, you spend a fair amount of time on RCTs, but, but, but what, do you, what do you want practitioners uh, to take away from the book? I guess one thing we haven't talked about, which it might be worth just just covering briefly, is what we're talking about when we talk about behavioural insights and how we define it. Because I think that really segues into what we want people to take away. So um, we define it in three parts. So very briefly, it is taking the theory, the evidence of what makes humans make the decisions they do, all of those things that we know about conscious and non-conscious processes that drives the decisions that we make. Um, Second bit is applying that to practical real-world problems, so really understanding the context um, and figuring out how these things can, you know, what these things can tell us about how the world works and how it might work better. And then the third thing is, as you kind of just alluded to, running experiments, randomized control trials, typically where possible, to figure out did those bright ideas that we had about applying theory in the real world in a practical setting actually have the effect that we were expecting uh, to what extent and, and for who? 
And and that's really the kind of, you know, three main parts here. And I would want anybody reading it who's thinking about uh, trying this stuff out and applying it to, to not neglect any of those three things. I think if they take away, oh, this is interesting theoretical stuff, but don't think about applying it in practice and measuring the effects, then, you know, that's great. That's one more person who's sort of bought in, but we're not changing how practice kind of happens in the world. And similarly, if they were to, you know, try and implement it without sort of measuring whether it worked, for instance, that would not necessarily be a great success either. Michael, I don't know if you'd add more. I think um, what we want people to do with this book is understand that there's something real and meaningful here, but at the same time understand kind of the potential concerns, which are real. And, you know, in some ways, one of the most kind of engaging parts for us to write was the criticisms because we spent many years reading them and it was nice just to, you know, express them ourselves in our own words um, and try to condense them, indeed, make them as good as possible, maybe better than, you know, express them better than the critics um, themselves. And then you know, we didn't try and, you know, answer everyone, rebut them and say, we said instead that, you know, um, we can't dismiss all these things. Here instead is a kind of way of dealing with them on a case-by-case basis, like Elspeth said, yeah. said, because that's really what people are going to be doing. Um, and so, yeah, you know, there's something here. It's worth looking at. This is the state of the evidence. These are the concerns. And then here are some practical things you could do uh, is, is the core of it. Um and then the last chapter is, you know, if you liked all that and want to think about this more deeply and want to start pushing the boundaries, here are some things that we think are going to be fundamental for the future. We get lots of questions all the time from people about what are some good books to read. And this is a book that I that, that will be recommended because uh, for those people who are looking for something that is an overview and yet gets into details and is very nice, I think this is this is the book that can do that really well. And, and you guys outline this, right? It is not only it's not just theory. It's looking in at the application side of things. And then again, as you're talking about the evidence. And so bringing all of those three things together and the way that you guys do that, I think is very powerful and it works. And so for people like Tim was saying, all of the people that are out there that are looking for, you know, getting a little bit more in depth of understanding, but then not just understanding the theory, but understanding how do you then take that theory and apply it and and test it? Those are the pieces that you guys outline in in really good detail and kind of show what behavioral insights can do for that. So, uh, yeah. fantastic. I just I'd like to just add to that editorial by by saying um, I met Dan Ariely before Predictably Irrational was was published, and when it was published, it, I recommended it as as a book pretty much to everyone, and it it turns out that a lot of people have used predictably irrational as the gateway drug into, <laughs> you know, into behavioral science. But, but I'm, I'm here to say that I think that this, this is the new gateway drug. I really do. <laughs> I think that, I think that this is just uh, written so well. It's, I mean, my gosh, it's 200 pages, uh, small pages of fantastically well packed stuff. And, and I, I, I just think that it's, it's really, it's a great read. So. My mother will be so proud I'm a gateway drug. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and 
I, I've I've actually posted this out on on some of the social media different things, but you can see from from the book, uh, I have I have marked it up, and these and the tags flags on here are only half of not even half of of all the other marks inside of there. As I'm like, oh, highlighting this and making a note on that, so it is a well marked up book for me. Uh, which, in my view, the more marked up a book is in this in this world, the better it is because it means that I'm getting something out of it, and so I would really highly recommend. It and, uh, and and again, thank you guys for coming on. Any uh, any last thoughts, words, um, you know, that you want to leave our, our listeners with words of wisdom or uh, how they can get in touch with you or get the book? We should definitely say how they can how they can get the book. So I believe you can get it in uh, all. I was going to say all good bookstores, but just just bookstores. You can, you can get it in wherever you wherever you buy your books. You can also buy it on uh, online. Um, there's links on the MIT Press website to places such as Amazon where you can buy it, and uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carminka. I'm at Tim Hallsworth. Um, yeah, uh, for all your like kind of latest behavioral science news uh, <laughs> and, and great incisive takes. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Well, we will, we'll, we'll definitely put all the links in, uh, in the show notes. So people, if you want to go out and, and just click through, you can grab the book and, and connect with Elspeth and Michael. And again, thank you guys. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Pleasure talking to you again. Thanks. Welcome to our grooming session where Tim and I groove on what we learn from our conversation with our amazing guests, have a free flowing discussion, and we talk about whatever else comes into our now insightful brains. After reading that book, we are, it is. We we are, are more insightful. We are so much more insightful after the knowledge that was embedded upon us through reading this great book <laughs> and from our conversation with these two. Definitely. That was as great as well. So. It, it really was absolutely. I, I, they're both such sharp people, and uh, just and they're funny and fun and uh, God, I just I, I love talking with both of them. It was pretty fantastic. Uh, Kurt, what what struck you? Where where do you want to start our, our grooving? Topics? Well, a it was a great it's a great book. So again, reiterate this fact of um, really enjoyed it. It it has a lot of insights in it across the board. And it's just super well written, and yeah. I think it, it it takes a different approach than than a lot of these. You know, here's a case study, and here's some pieces of things. It kind of gives a theoretical piece uh, as well. So really, I, I think that's the first piece. Go out buy this. Truly, truly enjoyed this book. Um, but in our conversation, we we started this kind of talk about autonomous vehicles and driving, and one of the things that Michael said in there is just this you know idea that it, it's the idea that perception of reality, uh, right? The perception of how good of a driver we are versus the reality of how good of a driver we are is really gonna be a key piece of this. And I just thought it was an interesting take. And this idea that our perception of reality is more important than reality itself, at least from thinking about how it impacts our behavior. Right. And so, so I wonder, I mean, this first leads me to question, are the designers of autonomous cars and autonomous vehicles thinking about that? Are they thinking about the way we perceive ourselves more than just 
how how people you know what what's observable because you know sometimes those those two things aren't aren't contiguous right they they're not uh, perfectly aligned um although when it comes to driving if i think i'm a really good driver i'm probably going to be more risk taking than, mm-hmm. than i ought to be right um but but i think that, that i i agree with you i think we have so much more to learn about how our perceptions of ourselves and how self-identity end up impacting our behaviors and how that translates into product development and, and the creation of, of product marketing communications, those kinds of things. Yeah. It, I think even beyond this, right? I mean, this concept can apply to a much broader perspective, politics, right? Our perception of reality versus reality itself. Mm-hmm. Business, as we talked about product design, but even working internally with, with your employees, what, what do they perceive as reality versus what reality is or even leadership, right? What right. is their perception of reality and how does that influence strategy, decisions on, on employee engagement programs, a variety of different things, even, even thinking about this perception of reality in relationships, right? Uh, if your relationship with your spouse or your, your friends or your kids, that perception is really what is true for them and impacts then all of their behaviors and how they're thinking about things. And you, you take this, right? So right. It, this idea, we already talked, right? The optimism bias that you have when you're driving and, and you're more optimistic about how good you are as a driver. But this also comes into fundamental attribution error, right? This idea that, hey, if something goes wrong for me, it's not because I suck at it, but it's because- It's just unlucky. I'm just- I'm, I'm just, unlucky, different things. Yeah. But if something goes bad for you- it's because you, you you're you were an idiot, lucky. You, you know, and <laughs> yeah, you, you just don't have the skill set or the knowledge or the ability to do it. And again, that reality on, on both of those fronts is probably somewhere in between. And yet our perception of that reality is something that influences yeah. how we think about those others, how we think about ourselves, and thus subsequent behaviors from it. I think about our conversations with clients recently uh, during COVID, right? During the pandemic. And so much of what we're dealing with on a perceptual basis when it comes to COVID is perception of risk. And what mm-hmm. do employees can you know perceive as risk? Because risk isn't a number. Yeah, you know, risk isn't a figure that we can we can we can boil down to just uh, a single number. It is a feeling. And so how we feel about risk is something that employers need to be taking into consideration when they're communicating to people and, and, and the employee's perception of what that risk is and what they believe reality is, is more important than what, what in some ways, what it really is. Right. So risk isn't just 78. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or, or 33 and a third. Yeah. 33 and a third. <laughs> I mean, but, but yeah. I mean, think about that, right? So, as we're thinking about how we behave, if we're thinking about how our employees behave, if we're thinking about how our loved ones behave, it's their perception of the reality that of, of our interaction, of that risk, as you said, of how we're coming at approaching things. And it is, you know, what I loved about Annie Duke, and we talked about Annie Duke as being one of our guests on in, in Nudge It North, and, and she's been on the show multiple times. But one of the statements, and I'm going to misstate this, so I apologize to Annie in advance, is this idea that do you want to be right or do you want to really understand what the reality is? And too often we 
we have this perception of the world that fits with our own self-identity and our own pre-held beliefs that isn't really a reflection on what is going on on the ground. It isn't a reflection of the true reality of the world. And, and I want to live in a world where I'm, I'm more attuned to the reality than whatever, you know, biases influence the way that my brain is thinking about things just to make me feel less cognitive dissonance or less, you know, angst about what's going on. It really feels good to be right though. It, <laughs> it does, it, you know, like be we, right. we like that feeling and that's, uh, that's going to be hard to, hard to get away uh, from. Um, we did spend a fair amount of time with Elspeth and Michael talking about why they wrote the book. And I, um, and I think that there, there are certainly some, some interesting parts about that. Uh, maybe, maybe the most important part for me was, uh, was when they were talking about sort of coming up with a, a clearer definition, right, of what's going on and, uh, you know, trying to figure out, well, at what level you're going to make an intervention. I think Elspeth spoke to this idea of at what level you're going to create an intervention. And it got me thinking about the Google cafeteria where they, they put the cookies they move the cookies from the the front of the of the cafeteria in a in a clear jar to the back in an, in a more opaque jar and and it's like you are intervening it is an intervention and it did reduce cookie consumption in the cafeteria but did it actually diminish anyone's desire for cookies overall yeah well we had that conversation with Eugen right Eugen Demont i believe yeah. about social norms can change our our desires or how we think about ourselves or, or different pieces, but nudges mostly by themselves, probably going to be a little bit different. And so it's, it is interesting. Like what, what, at what level are you trying to work? Are you trying to work at that level of getting people to think about their own life and who they are and being more healthy in their eating habits? And thus I will not choose a cookie versus I will not choose a cookie because it's back in the back of the of the cafeteria and I just don't see it or I don't notice it. Or by the time I get there, my plate's already full and I'm like, oh, nah, it's not necessary. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Which are two, the, the behavior at the end, not eating that cookie is the same, but there's a very different element of what level you're working on right. in order to get there, which is, an, again, we tend to think of just the outcomes often and not looking at that fundamental aspect of at what level are we operating on? Yeah. It makes me think about uh, putting a dam on a stream. You can stop the water, uh, you know, at any point along the stream. If you, if you stop, if you stop it uh, really close to the community uh, and then, and there's a, there's trouble, uh, the likelihood of something really bad happening to the to the community, if the dam breaks, is higher than if the if the dam were moved higher upstream, right? Yeah. You, if you take the intervention and you move it further upstream, then you have a you have a little bit more control over things. And just moving the cookie jar is kind of a a very downstream thing versus a very upstream thing in my mind. So, okay, well, uh, <laughs> so, so I like for, that. So I like that. Dams. What about uh, what 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 else, uh, Kurt? Did you want to uh, groove on here? Well, you know, one of the things that we we got into was this conversation on rational thinking and decision making, right? And this idea of, you know, who gets to determine what is rational and irrational, 
and, and this concept that yeah, we have yeah. that, hey, if, if you're not doing things that optimize every part of your life, that that is an irrational piece. And mm. I think to, to a degree, you know, how do we know? Right. (laughs) Again, you know, we can, we can talk about this, but you talk about, I mean, I know we've, you've, you've done a lot of work, not a lot of work, but you've, you've referenced the cab driver study in New York a lot of when cab drivers are out Mm -hmm. and it's raining, they get more fares. And instead of staying out and maximizing their payout for that day, they tend to go home early, go home early. And, and that was thought of as, that's not a really rational thing to do, but why? I mean, time is an important piece. They get to spend that time with their family and they're, they've covered their bills. They know what they, they need to earn. They've covered that. And so now they're, they're making a decision to say, I don't have to continue working today because I have met my financial needs. And now I'm going to optimize my time, you know, desire. Right. Right. So, what happens if our decision-making shortcuts, these heuristics that we use, actually serve us well? Like, why would we necessarily criticize something that says, I feel good about the daily wage that I just made as a cab driver, for instance, and now I'm going home because I made my average daily wage. I sort of met my financial obligation. And instead of staying on the job on a rainy afternoon and making more money, I'm going to go home and spend that time with my family. Or go to the bar and hang out with my friends or work on the basement or I don't know, you know, mm-hmm. what, what, whatever those things are. There can be utility in those things. Yeah. Classical economic you know, theory talks about utility, this kind of ephemeral piece that says, you know, we want to maximize utility and utility yeah. can be time spent with your, you know, your kids or, or just watching television, you know, there's a utility function within there, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, right. and who's to say that watching television for some individual person isn't more, it doesn't have more utility than, you know, staying out working and making that extra income. You know, you might say from a societal perspective, what is better, you know, what from that, but at an individual level, I, I don't know. I think it's hard, hard for us to really get into that and, and make those judgment calls. And individuals could vary by the moral foundations that they're operating from, right? What what they care about, uh, or it might be personality type. You think about uh, Ocean or the Big Five, you know, uh, openness and eroticism. Some people might be higher in eroticism, and and that might fit better with, uh, you know, the OCD kind of side <laughs> of it. Might fit better with the classical economist, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't live a happy life and a successful life being lower on neuroticism. Yeah. It, it it gets into some really interesting theoretical concepts, right? This idea yes. of who gets to determine this irrational versus rational thinking. That's it. Yeah. And that, and that's just an interesting thought concept to, yeah. to go over. At least it is for, for geeks like you and me. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Okay. I wanted to talk about ethics too. I mean, we, you and I spend a fair amount of time on ethics. Ah, ethics. Man, it's fantastic, right? But the discussion with Michael and Elspeth got me thinking about transparency because they both emphasize this idea that transparency is an important part of the ethical application of behavioral science interventions. And it got me thinking about when I watch an ad on TV, is there a disclaimer that says, by the way, 
we're using this image to elicit warm feelings for women between the age of 25 and 35 who've recently had children. <laughs> Without having any behavioral science in, insights into that, there that's just from a marketing perspective, right? Right, yeah. right. Uh, because they're trying to influence us. The marketer is trying to influence us. When, when, when the ads for purple mattresses are on, they're not saying, oh, and by the way, if you're actually a teenager that doesn't have any budget, we're actually trying to influence you so that you get your parents to to be sympathetic <laughs> and buy you an expensive mattress. So uh, you're using my my own uh, world lived life, right? It's where my my 14 year old uh, came to us and said we we needed to get him a new mattress. We got him a new bed, redid his room, and and he had gone online and of course fell under the sway of of purple um, and. You know, the the least expensive purple mattress that we could buy for him was like $1,279. And I'm like, oh, and that seems awful expensive for a bed you're going to be on for three years and then go off to college, right? <laughs> my God, my, my, my mattress didn't cost that much. But he was dead set on it because he had been influenced by these purple advertisements and and any other mattress was just not cut. You know, I'm like going, look, this one looks very similar. And he's like, oh, that doesn't have the whatever polymer, whatever patented thing that they had done. So they're influencing them uh, at that level. Is uh, purple's lack of transparency to say, we're saying these words, we're using these statistics to influence you. Is that necessary? necessarily then an unethical thing? Well, and I think that the part is, is they're trying to get this, but are, are we, because we have a behavioral science insight and we understand better how this works, are we more obligated to inform people that we are using these methods against them? Um, and I say against them on purpose, right? Because to a certain degree, we are trying to shift behavior, whether it be through a nudge or or some other type of, of influence campaign. Mm -hmm. Do we have an obligation because we understand how that works to share that information with them? And to a point, I, you know, I, I don't know, because you're not going to do that on the net. You're not going to, Google isn't going to put uh, a sign up at the beginning of, of the cafeteria to say, hey, everybody, we move the cookies to the back of the room in an oblique uh, container because we are trying to drive you to eat healthier. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Um, I mean, does it matter? I mean, you think about a nudge, right? A nudge by definition, according to, to Taylor and, and Sunstein, right? Taylor and Sunstein. Is this idea that you, you know, you're you still changing, have a choice. You yeah. still have a choice. You yeah. still have the opportunity. And there's not a financial incentive that is driving this that is significant. So you're not being, you, you don't have that uh, influence that is a, you know, pulling you at it. You still have a choice. It's just that the choice is set up in a way that you're more likely to make one decision versus another. I mean, it's it's a hard thing to say. Is it better to have that transparency because the transparency in the real world is difficult? Well, context matters, right? That if if we're doing an A/B test and some kind of an inter intervention where any of this might be suspicious, you know, uh, more sunlight is is probably better. At the same time, I feel like we are being influenced 
every day, every moment with everything that we see. And the idea of having disclaimers or or some kind of heads up that says we're we're trying to influence you in this way feels and, and maybe I'm maybe I'm misunderstanding Michael yeah. Melsbeth's uh, uh, comments here. I could be misinterpreting, but but I'm not sure if we need to go quite that far. But I think the ethical part of this too is though understanding. So the transparency is is in the be is in the design aspect. I think for me, right? If I'm thinking about yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, right. That transparency in the design, so that when you're working with other designers and you're working with with leadership or you know whoever is is kind of doing this is is letting them know that this is how we're working this and and making sure that that is ethically correct that the the outcome that you are trying to elicit is one that is going to bring value to the end user which again gets gets to be difficult you know the people well, at purple probably think every kid should have a purple mattress because it's going to have better sleep and better things. And we know how valuable yeah. this is, but in yeah. the long run, you know, is, is buying a purple mattress, the right decision for us. And so if they're using some behavioral science nudges to, you know, influence my son to say, this is the mattress that I need and get his, you know, hopes up that I then have to shatter as a parent <laughs> and throw him down this well of despair because he doesn't get a purple mattress. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's, it, and it's, a, it's not an easy question to answer. And I think that's the thing that we've just come upon time and time again. Ethics are hard, particularly as we think about, you know, how much of an influence does behavioral science actually make? What are the right things to do in those situations? All of that is just really could be an entire, you know, podcast on the ethics of behavioral science. It reminds me of um, conversations we've had on moral trade-offs. And to some degree, ethics are don't stand alone. They exist within the social norms. And there is some moral decision-making. To some degree, we've decided that the rational agent in the neoclassical economic model does these certain things, has this, this these stable preferences across all domains. And that we know that that's just not human. Right. So there's, so to some degree we're, we have to say the moral context that we're making these ethical decisions in are these, and maybe part of the design process is acknowledging those and putting them on the table so that we're aware of them. Yeah. I think that's really cool. Yeah. So, all right, I think we've probably beat this horse to you know, <laughs> death or whatever it is. Or, that, or to win the race. <laughs> or to win the race. Yeah, there you I go. That's right. We might have won the race. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that, folks, hang on because we're going to have a bonus track right after this. Hey, Groovers. This is Tim with the bonus track and groove idea for our conversation with Michael and Elspeth. We know that some of you don't make it this far, that once you finish hearing our conversation with our guest, you move on. But we also know that some of you love the bonus track as a recap of some complex ideas in the episode. So if you have a chance, drop us a note on Twitter or LinkedIn or Facebook and tell us what you think. We'd love to hear what you have to say. All right. In this episode, Michael and Elspeth laid out key steps to consider when designing a behavioral intervention. The central point to the discussion about their 10-point framework for creating a behavioral intervention is that seven of those steps are focused on design. 
only the last three are about execution. So groovers, measure twice, cut once. We spend a fair amount of time on ethics and transparency in the way interventions are put into the world. And these are central to much of the work that they do, especially when it comes to the development of governmental policies. We also discuss rationality and who gets to decide what is rational and what isn't. And this was particularly powerful concept since we know that humans are well-suited for defending their actions. And to what degree is that rational or rationalizing? For your groove idea for this week, we'd like you to consider Michael's comments about our perceptions about driving as it relates to autonomous vehicles. So ask yourself this, would you be more comfortable in an airplane if you could see the pilots or some of the controls? Well, as always, drop us a line, let us know what you think. This wraps up another episode of Behavioral Grooves. We appreciate you listening and hope you enjoyed it. Now, we want you to go out this week and find your groove.